Hello, my name is John Brink and we are on the brink in downtown Prince George, the capital of Northern BC, the most beautiful place in the world to live, at least in my mind. And we have a special guest and a friend, Tracy Calogaris. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, we have known each other already for quite a while. And, yeah, and very uh, long time. We're getting up to 30 years, I think. Dead long. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> no, I'm feeling old. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you, you're a very active individual, so am I. And we don't always get time to say hi, hello. Maybe hi, hello, but not much more. So this is an opportunity for me because you have such an interesting past and present and I'm sure future that uh, I thought it would be a great time to have you on our podcast and tell us a bit about you. So, so starting with that, tell me a little bit about your past from where you were born, if you want, and, and all of that sort of thing that brought you then along the line to Prince George. Sure. I, uh, well, I was born in Toronto. I'm a 1969 baby, so you can do the math, but I'm getting up there in years. And I uh, went through regular art school at York University, and it was around 1992 that they started putting razor wire up around an elementary school behind the apartment I was living in. And I thought, I don't think I want to live here and raise a family here. So I looked at a map, I'd never been out west. Prince George was in the middle. So I thought, all right, we'll start there. And as I simple as that, eh? As simple as that. Loaded up a cube van and came out, had nowhere to live and no job and a week to figure out how to at least find somewhere to live so I could so return the van. So when was that, Tracy? November 25th of 1992, I moved here. 1992. Was it cold here then and <laughs> snow? It was definitely cold and yeah. snowy. Coming down yeah. the hill on Highway 16, I was thinking, looking at the bowl, and it was one of those beautiful clear blue days. Were you snow. on your own? I had a boyfriend at the time and a friend yeah. of his and a yeah. van full of animals. We brought dogs and cats and a ferret with us. It was a very strange time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so that was in... What year again, you said? 92. 92. And, mm -hmm. and so no job and no place to stay. So what happened then? Well, we landed, found a place to rent. Um, I actually worked for a while at those that have been here a while. I was a waitress at the Village Pandora here in town. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I did a stint at Prince George Printers and wound up doing some volunteer work at the SPCA. And it was from there that I landed into the museum at my job there in 1994. You have this thing about animals then, right? Because you had uh, a number of animals with you when you came from out east. Mm -hmm. And uh, is that something special to you or in your life? Yeah, animals have always been a key piece of yeah. just my home life and of my interests. As a little kid, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I'll, I'll tell you that a lot of the work I do in the museum's world ends up landing me at zoos and aquariums. And I just right. feel like animals have a special place in people's hearts and they are unique in um, educational circles. Animals yeah. are some of the best ways to reach people and get them engaged in whatever the story is that you're trying yeah. to tell. I react to that because I be very much into animals, three dogs, two cats and 10 horses and all of that kind of stuff. You know, so they, uh, yeah, they are very much part of life and very important to us at least, you know, so into my no kidding. These days we could all learn a lot from animals and Ex their willingness to trust and exactly. to work together. And I also ride uh, uh, horses, uh, English dressage, you know, so it's oh, just... I took English as a kid. Yeah, was, you did, eh? Yeah, just having a conversation but, about switching over to reining and how there's yeah. so much similarity between reining and uh, English dressage. Yeah, yeah. 
So you still ride now sometimes? Not, not lately. I have. Yeah. My daughter took yeah. up riding for a while and uh, Sherry and Dennis were great. They were teaching her and so they took me under their wing and tried to convert an English rider to being a Western rider and I really yeah. enjoyed it. But yeah. time is of the essence and that's the problem well, for that's, me. Well, yeah, and the same for me actually. Uh, so you have one daughter? Or? I have a daughter and two sons. And two sons. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, I asked you the question because I pretty much know the answer. Do you have a husband? I certainly do. Has he got the same name as me? <laughs> John Caligaris, though, not Brink. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I meant the first name. Yeah, no. yeah John's well, in at the museum, too. We met there, got married there. Is that right? Yeah? Mm -hmm. So so when was that? When did you meet him? And was that during the first time that you got your first job there? Uh, no, actually, my predecessor, George Phillips, who used to be the director at the museum, I that, yeah. he hired John to stick handle our renovations that were in 2000, actually. And yeah. then John that was, was fairly major, too, then. Yeah, it was huge. That but was such a beautiful building, right? Right in the Clayton A. Tenet, uh, uh, park. It is. It's. Uh, Anthony Bonney was the architect in yeah. 2000, and he has come back to help us with the renovations we're doing right now. So yeah. it looks great. I'm pretty excited about the new exterior work that we're doing on that building. It's it's such an important piece of Clayton Tanay Memorial Park. Yeah, and and the other part about the region in in a general sense, and mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk about it a little bit later. But uh, you know, there's a lot about this uh, museum, and very very excited. I'm very excited about it, and I'm sure so is the community that when it officially mm -hmm. opens later on this year and uh, driven by there several times and it's amazing what is being done. It's such an important part of the, the infrastructure of the region, you know, to have a museum like that alongside with the university, the college, mm -hmm. swimming pool and all the other things that makes the North and, and Prince George in particular. A little bit more that I want to know about, uh, you've been very active in a lot of other things as well. I have. Tell me a little bit about that because you've been involved in the community, you've been involved in tourist Prince George and... Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm not very good at staying focused on one thing. Right. So, you know, when you're looking at an organization like the museum, it has its fingers into so many different things going on in our community and by extension, I wound up having the opportunity to get involved. So. Yeah. You know, yes, I, I set up the society papers for Tourism Prince George. I've served on the Northern BC Tourism Board at various times. Yeah. I had the opportunity to get involved in the 2015 Canada Games, both at the bid stage and at the host Which society. It's a major right for the region. Huge, huge yeah. difference. And when you look at some of the real significant changes that are happening, in some ways, just in our own self-image here in the North, yeah. the Games, I think, are one of the key changing points in no that. No question about that. And of course, I ran for office for the federal liberals a couple of times. Um, right. So I've been involved in politics. It really started years how, back. For yeah, how did you get into politics of all things? <laughs> well, I, I don't believe in sitting on the sidelines, as you may have guessed. Yeah. And and I think that Walk if you're, the talk. <laughs> you got it. If you're yeah. going to complain, you need to get involved. And exactly. I guess I think I have some ideas that could be of use. So my interest in politics stemmed from what I learned about the impact that politics at all levels have on community organizations like museums and no then you start to extrapolate that out yeah. into policy and there's yeah. not enough northern voices at those decision-making exactly. tables in Victoria or Ottawa so exactly that's I've definitely got a voice so I decided to use it and got involved so then you ran as a candidate for the Liberal Party mm -hmm. 
Twice or three twice. times? Twice. And, and uh, now that's an experience all in its own, right? You aren't kidding. And, and the only one that somebody can really relate to it is somebody that has ran, uh, you know, uh, for candidate or for nomination or for the seat. I did it in uh, 2001. That's right, you did. Against my enemy, no, I'm just joking, my best friend, actually, Shirley Bond, mm -hmm. you know, who, uh, her and me, we ran, uh, you know, the, uh, for the BC Liberals in the uh, uh, Prince George Vailmount uh, riding, and uh, we were the only two candidates. She won, you know, so, uh, and, uh, you know, so, uh, but, uh, you know, it uh, was an interesting experience, you it know, is. so. Uh, it changes your perspective on... Oh, it, what you can do, what the roles are, and how the community treats you. And then the other part is being part of a, a campaign is very involving and very delicate and all the other things around it, you know. So it's a, it's a whole different uh, experience and certainly one that I'm thankful for being involved. Before that, I already was, uh, since the early 80s, I think for... Uh, I was the uh, writing president for the uh, uh, Socrates in uh -huh. Prince George North. And, uh, you know, and I'm kind of proud of that because that was during the time that uh, we uh, got the concept of a Northern University yeah. uh, started. And then it finally did happen, obviously, and, uh, in the late 80s, 90s, uh, you know, but all of that was all part of that and you being around that. When you bring issues forward politically, it's quite a process. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so the uh, so it's quite an experience. Did so you find that when you ran unsuccessfully that it didn't matter whether you were successful or unsuccessful, you still wound up it's like you've given up your private life. The public still comes to you looking for leadership and advice and access. Yeah. Yeah, I found the same thing. It's interesting to me. Yeah, so, so obviously what it meant, the decision was just like you said, you know, because I already was involved in politics before yeah. because I was the writing president for Bellow for 10 years and, uh, uh, and, uh, or longer actually. And uh, so I wanted to be involved, right? So, mm -hmm. and then we did a lot of interesting things, including the university and all those kind of things. And then at some point, the point gets to, well, you want to walk the talk or, or you're going to just sit back and wait, right? So, and so then I put my name up and, uh, you know, and that was quite an experience because uh, here you are and, uh, you know, the, the you open up the closet, with all the good, the bad and the ugly, but fortunately, I'm not saying that I'm that good, but there was nothing to, there were no major things that, uh, but it's quite an experience. And yeah. then obviously being challenged, uh, you know, and in uh, public meetings and all of these kind of things happen in that process, right? And, uh, and then... Uh, uh, I didn't like losing necessarily. <laughs> Who <laughs> Nobody does? does yeah. yeah, and uh, you know, but uh, I I was uh, quite okay with it, you know. And then yeah. uh, Shirley uh, uh, was obviously a fantastic uh, candidate. And has yeah, done Shirley's a been great. Job. I think it would have been an interesting, different twenty years to have seen you in that role because I it, think you would have been great too. Yeah. That's what I thought. No, I'm just joking. Anyway, uh, Shirley will be. We'll my, solve all my, the problems of the world between yeah, us. Yeah, she will be my guest in the next couple of weeks as well. So the, uh, but in any event, the so you did that part, but mm -hmm. then you ran once, 
and then you ran again, mm -hmm. and and uh, you know obviously you knew already a lot more the second time around, and then it's a tough battle, right? To uh, especially in the this region, I don't want to turn this into politics necessarily, but uh, <laughs> it's so settled in certain areas. Yeah. And uh, it's a big riding, right? Yeah, physically, it's a large chunk of geography to try and cover all of it. And the 2015 election was the longest one in Canadian history. So, of course, yeah. jump How in. How long was the actual campaign? Oy vey, I've forgotten now. It was three months that yeah, I took a leave from the museum. And yeah. we did a lot of covering yeah. the, the ground. It was just John and I doing it on our own for the most part. Second yeah. time around, we had more help from the party, but... It wasn't the same experience. I liked no. it better, actually, when it was John and I on the road talking to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's a major, major commitment to your life because everything will change, right? Yeah. So the, uh, and, uh, you know, so you did all of that and then, uh, you know, the, you went back to the university. But in the meantime, you've always had a presence in the community and in the region. You always stayed proactive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then the other thing about you that uh, I, I think that because of all the, all the time that you have been here, but the other part, you're an outdoor individual, right? Mm -hmm. And so likely is John, you know, so that, uh, you know, and then I tell my guests that, uh, you know, that are watching our podcast from around the world, actually, uh, you know, that Prince George is the center of, as you already mentioned, of British Columbia. Mm -hmm. British Columbia is a big, big province, you know, like uh, we are half, uh, we about uh, 500 miles or about 800 kilometers north of Vancouver. And then probably another 800 kilometers further north is the border with the Yukon. And then east and west is another 800. And, uh, you know, so, and so we are in the middle. Mm -hmm. Now, Jerry Thiessen, the mayor of Vancouver, would say, no, we are. Okay, we'll give him that, but we, we together are. The middle's know. big. Yeah, and then the other part about Prince George, which is so unique, and we sitting here downtown Prince George. When I came here in 1965, Prince George was a boomtown. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, it, it was booming, and a job could be had in a half an hour. And uh, George Street in particular, there were lots of bars and lots of cafes and, uh, you know, but, and the normal conversation would be, when did you get here and when are you leaving? You know, so obviously things have changed dramatically. We are probably, I, I, I've been all over the world, so have you likely, is that uh, I cannot think of a place that has more comp combination and balance of all seasons although spring is a little bit slow this year, but uh, normally it's it's it has coming. all the whole of that. And uh, that has all the lakes. We have thousands of lakes here within 50 kilometers from around us. Yeah. And then so much nature. Uh, you know, I drove down the road uh, a couple of days ago and then, uh, you know, there was a black bear on the road, just virtually downtown Prince George, and deer, and uh, uh, you know, moose, and, and so there's still so much wildlife, yeah. and at the same time, Prince George has matured into a community that has the best small university in Canada. Mm -hmm. Then we have an amazing college of New Caledonia yep. that served the entire region <coughs> of Northern BC, and then, uh, you know, in, in Prince George, indirectly as a leadership 
role in northern British Columbia. I call it the capital of northern British Columbia. Yeah, I don't think that leadership role is indirect at all. I think no. that as Prince George goes, so goes the north. And it's, that there's, you know, we're not just a service center, but you exactly. hit it on the head with the access to the outdoors. There is just yeah. nothing like this community with the level of urban amenities yeah. and that immediate access to wilderness. And yeah. it's true wilderness. It isn't it's, managed no, forests no, no. or groomed parks. We have exactly. those too. Yeah. But to be able to, well, I mean, I'd live at Tabor Lake. I'm 12 minutes to work on a half acre looking at a mountain and water. And my cabin Amazing. is another two hours from here at Francois Lake where, yeah. again, it's incredible wilderness. We've had yeah. grizzly bears and you name it on the island. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's, there's nothing like this. Yeah, and, and for a family to grow up in a region like this. 100%. It's, it's, you know, because it has virtually everything. And then uh, from a career perspective, uh, you know, it's still very much growing and it's very active. To my friends further south from us, I tell them a lot of times that uh, do not forget Northern BC g generates probably 80% of the uh, GDP in the province of British Columbia. So don't forget it, you know, so, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, but yeah, it's an uh, amazing and, uh, you know, so. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I, I can't imagine living anywhere else now. Having grown yeah. up in southern Ontario in the suburbs outside of Toronto and vacationed all over there, I, I tell people now, you'd never get me out of here with a crowbar. I no. absolutely love this place. Yeah, and especially after all the things that happened with COVID and, you know, and, uh, you know, that that's still lingering somewhat, but, uh, but still that kind of, living in, in a beehive area where so many, so many people so close by. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I kind of appreciate Ben George every day of the week. Yeah, the geography has protected us for so many reasons. But yeah. the, the elbow room that we have up here is just until the rest of the world realizes how good we've got it. You, yeah. know, you watch the exodus coming out of the major urban centers since COVID. Exactly. And people are looking at markets like ours. And that's where you see exactly. the, the housing boom and, and just the growth. All of that. But we've know. already got the cultural amenities. We've already got the the established post-secondary and medical and all the rest of it. And it's, look at the swimming pool. Right and looking us, at the huh? swimming pool right behind you. You a got major, it. A major, major swimming pool. So it has the infrastructure. And uh, <laughs> we've been very fortunate with good leadership, uh, both regional and uh, yeah. the community. And, uh, you know, the uh, mayor and council, they have done a very, very good job. In particular, show that doing when there were difficulties in 2018, 2019, uh, when we had forest fires that uh, yeah. were very, very major and a lot of people had to evacuate yeah. and, and were welcomed into Prince George's and uh, all the communities pulled together. And that kind of showed how close they are together, uh, you know, and especially in times of difficulty and adversity, you know. I think people make the place. Yeah. And, you know, that's why the work that I've been doing for these last 28 years at the museum is meaningful work because yeah. it's all about people and a place. Exactly. So if you're, you're talking about the value in Prince George, whether it's our contribution to the GDP or the access to the wilderness, none of that makes a particle of difference if the people are no fun. Exactly. But this community pulls together and this community yeah. believes in itself and in each other. And you know, if you have a breakdown or an issue, yeah. someone's gonna help. Yeah. You never have to worry that you're not going to have enough hands to run an event or exactly. to be able to 
I don't know, express an opinion yeah. that is going to be heard beyond our own community. This isn't a very special place, but it's because Canada's a special place. Well, it is, yes. There's no place like it in the world, in my opinion. I'm yeah. with you 100%. That's why we get along. Yeah, and, and then, uh, you know, the other thing about Prince George was incorporated in 1914, mm -hmm. you know, started virtually as a small little community by the river, and only 110 years later, you know, look at it now. Mm -hmm. and, and then look at it as we go forward. There's no question in my mind that uh, it will grow uh, sizably too from where we are today. And uh, hopefully that's a good thing as long as we keep it well balanced, you know, so... Uh, so, so the other thing, uh, you know, the, what I want to talk to you about in particular as well is that uh, you, you've managed now the uh, Exploration Place Museum for about 28 years. It, it virtually started in that time that you became involved in it and that it had a major rebuild in 2000-ish. And, uh, you know, and now obviously it's uh, in the process of completion, uh, you know, that should be complete hopefully in September, that has not only, which I have seen, others have seen the exterior, still this amazing location, mm -hmm. the Clayton HNA Park, is that uh, yeah, it looks beautiful and, and but inside virtually all the areas that you have and the specialties that you have all have been changed as well and updated, right? 100%. Now, at one point there was a fire. Mm -hmm. uh, did a lot of things get damaged then? Everything was lost. So Everything. that was 1976. Yeah. Um, the museum had really just finally built their first permanent home and yeah. opened it up. And it was that winter, um, the trucks were unable to get into the park because there had been too much snow and they couldn't get in and they essentially watched the log building burn and the entire museum collection went up with it with the exception of the taxidermied animals which had been pulled out for cleaning for the winter. So wow. it, um, there's a large grizzly that anyone who's been through the museum has seen standing on his hind legs. Yeah. He's one of the few that survived that fire in the 70s. So a lot of stuff was lost. Eh? So how yes. did you then from there on in uh, that happened in 76 and obviously then when you became involved, uh, you know, 20 years later, so 25 years later, then you were still in the process of rebuilding yes. the history. So where did you source and get all the things? Yeah, it was a blessing in disguise in some ways. You know, losing the irreparable collection was, there, there's nothing you can do to change that. Yeah. But as anyone who's ever tried to jettison their own personal collections, that feeling of freedom that comes when you're not carrying around a mountain of stuff, it's not a good thing for a museum to start that way, but all through the 80s, it became a process of the museum doing some soul searching. What do we want to do? How do we want to interpret the history of Prince George and of the region? And so because it was a blank slate, it freed up the people through the 80s and the early 90s to really revision what they thought was going to make sense. So there was a large photographic collection that came in through the city, the Wally West photo collection that had a, a basis in the Simonson glass negatives from the earliest days of post-contact settlement. Now, Wally West was uh, had a shop here on 3rd Avenue. He did, Shadows Operated there for years and years and years and uh, was well, well known. 
he was designated a Canadian master photographer, which yeah. is a very rare designation, and we um, had him right here. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that became sort of the core nugget of the historic collection, which then meant that what we were doing was telling stories based on images. The director, George Phillips, who came in in 1992, started to look to natural history as a key component of how to fill the existing 12,000 square feet of galleries that they had then. They opened the Explorations Gallery in 1994, and that was the same month I started with the institution as their marketing and graphics person. So I was building exhibits and doing the, the talking to the community about what the organization was. We started to take in some live animals and the hands-on science approach started to really take off and the community bought back into an institution that really had had massively damaged trust given the loss of the entire collection in the 70s. Because we didn't have a massive physical collection, it also changed our approach to being about relationships and the relationship that we built with the Clayton Tenay starting in the mid-1990s is unique not just in the province but in the country for a non-indigenous cultural institution to work so closely with a local First Nation as no we question. have. It has paid dividends well beyond exhibits in the galleries. Right. Those relationships not only have informed the development of the museum and the way we tell stories, and we have learned a lot sitting at the feet of the elders, but it has also provided an entry point for the Clayton Tenay in many cases into other aspects of the non-Indigenous community that's developed here in the North, right at a moment when the entire world is waking up to the loss of Indigenous communities and wisdom and contributions that has happened because of that colonial approach that predominantly Britain imposed on the world. So again, I loop back to this idea that a museum has a role in its community far beyond simply warehousing collections. Yes, that is the nugget of the work that we do. We collect and we hold these in safekeeping in perpetuity. But beyond that, there's no point in having a collection if no one sees it or no one uses it or no one cares that you're holding it. So it, it's so much a piece of creating a relationship with the community that I am not at all certain would have happened if we had been carrying around the lodestone of a colonial collection of cork boots and crosscut saws. We have those things and we've found some of those objects in the years since the fire. But I think if we had been carrying a pioneer collection, it would have really limited the freedom of the museum to think about itself in a whole new way. And we're now being held up provincially and nationally as leaders because we have taken these different approaches to interpretation and storytelling. I, I'm sure it would not have happened because it would have been so entrenched in where it already was. It already <laughs> had the identity then and although it was very, very unfortunate what happened, but because of that, it could renew at a very critical point, I believe. I'm with you. Yeah, in, in, in particular to understand and, and, and mutually uh, with the uh, indigenous community together and uh, you know, the people that, in, not only in the region, but in the province, because I was born in Holland, you know, so in, and Holland has a history of hundreds and hundreds of years. What we have here, when I first came in in the 60s, 
if you met somebody that was born here, you would say, my God, you must be one of the only three. <laughs> you know, so then, you know, because there were not many people here that really were then born here. You know, Well, there so, weren't that many non-Indigenous people here that weren't born here then. Exactly. And, and obviously, uh, you know, the Indigenous people have been here for a long, long, long time. Mm -hmm. But to, so then for the, the whole community to mix closer together and get to know each other, obviously the Clayton HNA and all the things that have happened with the park and the museum highly contributed to that in terms of bringing them closer together, especially these days, you know, it's very, very critically important. I think you're absolutely right. I think that had we been the traditional city museum, there would have been no appetite to no. look beyond that colonial approach to museological practice. Yeah. But because we couldn't be that, we had that opportunity to look past what museums traditionally had been. You know, I've, yeah. I've heard that said so many times. Well, you know, when you moved here, it was always, well, were you from here? Were you born here? No one was born here. Yeah. But that, to me, illustrates how segregated the two communities were. Yeah, no question. Because the Clayton Tanay have been here in excess of 9,000 years, yeah. and their ancestors before that. Yeah. So it's, to me, it was very telling, because I heard exactly that. In the yeah. early 90s, when I moved here, that's how people talked about the population of Prince George. Because there was, was no transient. interaction, right, between them. Right? Absolutely. You know, so the closer they become together, the more they are alike, mm -hmm. rather than the opposite, you know, so the... Uh, I had a gentleman ask me this morning about um, the train rail and how it crosses in Prince George. And, you know, that was all about the development of Prince George. That's what brought people here. And I had to correct him and say, well, actually, no. Prince George has always been a meeting yeah. place, this yeah. physical geographic space. Yeah. But it's, it's about a crossroads of rivers and a crossroads of trail and a crossroads of all sorts of things. The geography yeah. drives the settlement, yeah. but the settlement is not limited to post-contact white folk. Exactly, very correct. The, the, the other thing that I always think has such huge potential here, I hope, is that, uh, you know, for uh, the people that visit us and then know it more and more all the time, is that how can they learn more about the history around us? One of them is the museum, no question mm -hmm. about that. One of the other ones is uh, all the nature that I have be around here, the park and the lakes and all the other things. But the, the other part that I always believe would be interesting, and I've talked about it for the last 20 years, is that if you look at the, the uh, museum, equipment museum, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that uh, at one time in the early, uh, uh, you know, the, in, in, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, all the history around here in terms of industry. And the other part is that in the park that we have, we can virtually see it from here. So if we have, we already have that and we can do more and then to have close by, which in the same area, if we had an area from where as you walk in through the gate, you're now at 2010, the way things looked here then, including First Nations mm -hmm. on the ground, not only in pictures, but re replicating precisely what you said, mm -hmm. is that the history uh, First Nations for in excess probably of 9,000 years, mm -hmm. how, how did that all look before Prince George was Prince George? And that, uh, so that's always what I kind of visualized is that uh, 
you know, we have one part is that is the uh, equipment and some of the mill equipment they used to use, uh, you know, and, and that's all good, but we can go beyond that in the same region to have the opportunity, no different than Bikerville, uh, mm -hmm. you know, again, uh, in terms of time, it goes far beyond that, but to have something here that we could stop walk through these gates and all of a sudden you know where we are, we are in the 1900s or beyond mm -hmm. and, and get an idea of what it then looked like. And, and that would be a, a point where it makes people stop, not only enjoy Prince George because of all the other things that we already talked about, but also in terms of the, the history in particular because of the history museum as one part. And I can see that we will at some point go further than that in terms of uh, you know being physically walking through it right yeah. yeah there's always that sort of in situ immersive historic approach they're they're challenging for a variety of reasons yeah. um, you know I would encourage people to think about coming down and riding on the dinky engine in Clayton Tanay Memorial Park if you yeah. wanted a physical experience with history that 1912 dinky engine is a legitimate artifact and it's the only one yeah. left in North America still plying the rails. So yeah, I, I didn't know that. It's pretty neat. It's also yeah. Canada's shortest railroad. Yeah. So yeah. it's, Amazing. and it's different than an amusement park ride. This is a yeah. six ton wood fired steam engine and it built the Grand Trunk um, Pacific Railway. Amazing. You so. know, so the, uh, so, when is the museum opening? Uh, have you got a date or is it September? I haven't got a date. I'm pointing at the fall, so I'm yeah. aiming for September. Yeah. yeah, so that's the goal. And then if all things go well, and then, uh, you know, so which is uh, uh, an amazing time and it will be uh, quite different from what it was before, once you, not only from the outside, but as you walk into it. Oh, without a doubt. We haven't left a single gallery untouched. And for those that have been around a while, we put in that motion simulator in 2000 into the Simex gallery. That's now been converted to a teaching kitchen, which is going to have some incredible opportunities for the city to participate, not just in adult cooking classes, but kids, uh, populations at risk. And it, I'm, I'm pretty excited about what we're yeah. going to be able to do with that teaching kitchen. So the museum will keep you very, very busy, you and John. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your children's names? You have the one daughter, two sons? That's right. So Tiani is our daughter. She's the oldest. And then... How old is he? She is 27. Is he in the region here? Or is he... She is. All three kids are living here. Yeah. Uh, and Tiani actually just decided that she wants to really lean hard into her artwork. So she's doing some work on Twitch and she's doing private commissions, um, drawing characters artist. for people. Yeah, she is. And what does she do? And, uh... She's not working at the moment. No, she... no, I meant in terms of artistic. Uh, Mostly digital paint. Okay. So yeah, yeah. there's, um, she's experimenting now with coding and moving into developing some gaming nice. type work. And our youngest son, Jake, is also moving that direction. His artwork is more sculptural generally, though he's moved more into digital paint over the last couple Where of years. Where did you get the, the art thing from? Well, you know, I, I think that Tiani and Jake are my stepkids and their mother is a very artistic person okay. and so is their father, John. He also is extremely artistic. Oh, I'm yeah. the one who took art in school, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm an above average doodler. I had a, a prof tell me years ago that I should really consider arts administration, which I took to mean my art stank. So uh, I'm not going to claim any of the credit of the kids' skills. Yeah. But uh, that's where that's all coming from for them. Right. Now, the other thing that I noticed is that you got an award, the Governor's General Award. Mm -hmm, the museum. So what is that? 
So the museum and the Claytley Tenay were jointly awarded the Governor General's Award for History. Okay. And uh, it's federal. It's a federal award. award. Yeah. Quite prestigious. Very prestigious. Yes. Uh, we've never won anything like that in the no. past. And in this instance, it was for the memorandum of understanding that we signed in 2016 with yeah. the Claytley Tenay, where we repatriated our entire collection of material culture that we were holding because we felt it was the right thing to do. Yeah signed the MOU, handed the entire collection back to the Claytley. They, in response, said, this is great. We trust you now. We believe you. Will yeah. you be our repository? Yeah. So then they made us the official home Perfect. for their material culture. Yeah. But it was that act of trust on both sides that yeah. cemented that relationship. And it took us 15 years to get to that point. Yeah. So that the Governor General's Award became an example that's right. of what it can be, right? And that was to acknowledge that unique relationship. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I really can't emphasize enough how important the relationship component of what the work is that I do yeah, has I, always I been. Yeah. Yeah. The, so, you're still young uh, compared to me. <laughs> <laughs> you're in better shape. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. I'm trying to be. So, the, uh, you know, so, Health is one of the most important parts, right? mm -hmm. and staying healthy, physically, mental. And then I write books, you know, one a year, I hope. I heard you've got a new one coming out. It's coming out July. Uh -huh. It's ADHD Unlocked. And That'll be a good one. It's a good one, you know, because, uh, you know, the uh, I have had so many people say to me, uh, you know, the uh, it happened... Uh, I think we, we we were in a in a thing at the winery actually where we were invited to uh, be guest to about sixteen different individuals from across Canada and uh, to kind of talk about the forest industry but also other things and uh, so I was sitting next to two individuals and and as we talked, did, they did a lot of research, actually. I was surprised. He said, I, I saw your book. I said, oh, my God. And I told him about the other book. And then he said to me, I haven't told anybody that. He said, I was diagnosed with ADHD. I haven't told anybody. I said, no. <laughs> yeah. And he was probably in his... Uh, Late 30s, maybe early 40s, and quite successful, and uh, you know, so it gave me an opportunity to speak there, and then I took the liberty, because he told me to, as I talked about some of the other things other than just lumber, also about ADHD in the book that I was doing, and say, uh, you know, for example, I talked to Andrew, who confessed to me that this was the first time that he said to anyone that he was diagnosed ADHD. And he was sitting there, he said, yeah. <laughs> he said, I, wouldn't, I, I didn't know that you were going to tell everybody, but I said, you told me. It's something to be proud it's of. It's not a secret, you know. yeah. Yeah, so in any event, yeah, I did, uh, you know, so it comes out then, and uh, I'm quite excited about it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to reading it. And it's funny, on that same theme, um, I was diagnosed at two years old as hyperactive. So in that era, they didn't have ADD or ADHD. So I've decided I've turned it into a superpower, and I will just function with it. But uh. I think uh, you know the uh, you know as you already noted is that uh, 
Uh, you know, I, I was uh, same as you said, uh, uh, attention and hyperactivity and all of those things in combination. Uh, I failed grade three once, and then I uh, gra failed grade seven three times, and that's the time they took me out of school and said, "Well, what do we do with them?" You know, as fourteen, do we? send them to the mentally challenged school or do we get them a job? So they got me a job and I became a furniture maker. Well, there's no question that you don't have, you know, a mental deficiency in terms of being able to deal with the traditional school work. work. <laughs> yeah. But in our era, yeah. for sure, they didn't know what to do with children who were neurologically divergent and, and so. And still so, uh, Tracy, you know, mm -hmm. like even now, uh, much better than it used to be, but the stigma is still there to a certain 100%. extent. You know, and, and uh, the time that I, I picked up a book, and books on third actually, and I looked at the book, I don't know why I did it. I was looking at it, it was uh, driven to distraction. And as I, which I normally don't do, I looked at it and all of a sudden I said, oh my God, that's me. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it in Dutch and it, uh, you know, now I finally know who I am. And, and I looked at the book at least for a half an hour, three quarters of an hour until the guy that owns the store said, well, are we going to buy it? Or what? <laughs> you know, you know. Anyway, I bought it. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of funny now because they're selling my book. They are now this one and the other one they will as well. That's so, kind of cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so, but uh, that I view it as a superpower. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, superpower in the means that I can do a whole lot of things all at the same time, more so than, with all due respect to other people, but. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, that works for me and it always worked for me. But it took me till I was 57 years old to see that book. Then before I talked to really other than my wife about it, uh, I, I talked to my d doctor about it five years after that when I was 63. And he was a friend, but I was ashamed of it. So I, I, I went to his office and I said, uh, he said, uh, how are you doing? I said, I'm good. Yeah. So I said, well, okay, well then the next way, why are you here? <laughs> because I seldom go there. And then I said, I think I got ADHD. And he said, why? And so we went through that together and he said, I think so too. And, and then it took me another four or five years, uh, you know, then uh, I thought, I should, should I, I, again with him, should I take medicine for it? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, maybe Adderall. Now I know this quite a, can be quite addictive, apparently. So he gave me a, 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 a bottle of uh, 100 pills. I used three of them. I still got them in my drawer. They, uh, you know, they, I think it was 2008, mm -hmm. you know, so that's 14 years ago. And uh, so I only used three and never used any others. But, uh, but I found that I had to write about it. I had an obligation to write about it. You know, not only that, but also PTSD because I was born during the war years and things. Uh, mm -hmm. We were liberated by the Canadians in April the 12th, 1945, and things were pretty tough as pe people can relate to the Ukraine of being under, uh, you know, uh, in a war zone. It was tough, you know, and we saw as kids far too much that we should not have seen. And, uh, you know, so the first time that I really talked about it, uh, I got the, uh, was, had the honor of getting the honorary uh, doctorates of laws from the University of Northern Miss Columbia in mm. 2019. And, and had to then do a presentation in front of about 600 people or so. I, I 
I talked about it then, that part. It's actually online. And, uh, you know, so the, uh, I felt it was, I had an obligation to talk about it. And I do that now more frequently as I, and obviously then uh, I decided to write a book about it last year. And that's coming out in July the 8th, really, and should be in the bookstores on the 15th. Perfect. I'll look for it. Yeah. So now, that then being said, where do you go from here? To be perfectly frank, I'm not sure. I have promised my team and my board that I will get this project to the finish line and get our renovations done and the building opened and then I need to take a bit of a break because yeah. I need some time. Which I is well deserved, right? Mm -hmm. So. Once I've had that break and a chance to get my feet back under me after we're reopened, then I think yeah. I can decide what I want to do next. You know, yeah. I, I've been really interested in the idea of living off grid and trying a subsistence lifestyle. I, I mean, it seems very different than anything I've done to this point. And certainly for a downtown Toronto girl, it could be a challenge. Yeah. But John is so capable and so embedded in the north and in the wilderness that I think between us, we might have a shot at it. So maybe I'll try something like that. Yeah. Interesting. They'll be watching you. It'll be an adventure. It'll always be interesting. I guarantee yeah. you, whatever direction I'm I go, sure it'll it will be, be entertaining. Too. I will get you a book. I will sign it for you. Do you have one of my other books? I do. You signed one for me. And you oh. gave me one for the museum collection. It's okay. in accession. So you're stuck in the museum now, John. I love it. <laughs> you know, so I will get you one as soon as the other one comes out. And uh, Tracy, it was my pleasure. Pleasure Thank to you. talk again. Thanks, John. Yeah. Take care.